BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, before we get started, I wanted to make an announcement. The Argument is having its first ever live show. It's going to be April 10th at 7.30 p.m. at the Time Center in New York. Come see Ross, Michelle, and I debate in real life. Get your tickets by clicking on the link in our show notes within your podcast app or by going online to timesevents.nytimes.com slash opinionapril. That's timesevents.nytimes.com slash opinionapril. The tickets are selling quickly, so if you want to come join us, buy your tickets now rather than waiting. We would love to see you there. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, the Mueller investigation. Did we all blow it out of proportion? Yeah, I mean, my my response is is short and sweet. No collusion. (laughs) Witch hunt. Then, is it finally time to abolish the Electoral College? And I sort of feel like if, you know, our country were a little bit younger and more vigorous, there would have been a regime crisis already. And finally, a recommendation. And both of those things seem like more valuable than like 99% of self-help advice that I can think of. The Mueller investigation is over. The president, who had long branded the investigation derisively as a witch hunt, is now embracing its conclusion as vindication. Donald Trump's critics feel let down. Trump himself is feeling vindicated. Which raises the question, is the Trump-Russia story less of a big deal than Democrats, national security officials, the media, and many others have made it out to be? Ross, Michelle, and I are going to talk about that. We're going to have some sharp disagreements about Mueller today, and I hope they will help you clarify your own thoughts. I'm going to go first briefly and answer that question with a yes, but. I do think the expectations for the Mueller report got a little out of hand, including my own. Based on what we know so far, Mueller seems to have found less evidence of a relationship between the Trump campaign and Russia than many people expected. But the caveat is also important, which is that Mueller uncovered a lot of criminal and unpatriotic behavior by Trump's inner circle. And I'm really reluctant to draw final conclusions until we've seen the actual Mueller report, not the four-page summary written by William Barr, who is, after all, a Trump appointee. Michelle, why don't you go next? Are you suffering from Mueller disappointment syndrome? So it's not that I'm suffering from Mueller disappointment syndrome. I'm absolutely enraged at the way that this is all being spun and covered by much of the media. I mean, I just cannot believe what I am watching happening and the amount of gaslighting and misinformation You know, and as you know, I kind of objected to this framing for the show, right? I thought that the question should be, has Trump been exonerated? With the answer being obviously not. So just to back up, I mean, you guys remember, maybe remember, a few months ago, I said that, you know, my feeling about this has always been summarized by the Passover song, Dayenu, which means it would have been enough. And that's really how I feel about Trump being a traitor who should be impeached. So what I hoped for the Mueller report was not that it would reveal that Trump is even worse than I believe him to be. I I did have hope that it would convince Republicans to finally show 
at least like a modicum of patriotism in forcing them to stand up to him. And obviously that's not happened. And in fact, they've sort of now doubled down on their misinformation. And we're now in a country where our two competing realities are so dug in and solidified that it almost feels like there's no way back for us as a nation. But people always said, well, he might not find conspiracy, which is the crime, but we can expect that he'll probably find obstruction. And so it looks like what happened, although we don't know, is that he released this report. He didn't find evidence of a crime, or at least he didn't find evidence that rose to the level of being able to prove a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. He found significant evidence of obstruction of justice, but decided not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment, um, presumably because of the DOJ regulations that say a sitting president can't be prosecuted. And they spun this so well by kind of releasing this highly tendentious summary written by this um, an attorney general handpicked for the purpose of covering this thing up. They release this thing. He kind of says, well, I've concluded there's no obstruction of justice. They start screaming exoneration, even though the report specifically says it does not exonerate Trump. And sort of the whole media is has this kind of whiplash and they're so bullied by the belligerence of the right that they kind of go along with this narrative that none of us have any idea if it's supported by the underlying document. My response is, is short and sweet. No collusion. <laughs> Witch hunt. That's all I got. That's it? I'm totally vindicated. Ross, I am angrier at you than usual today. Ross, I was going to congratulate you on having been somewhat prescient, but I, you're, you're not no really putting me in the mood collusion. to congratulate you. No collusion. Witch hunt. That's all. All right. No, I'll make an argument. So, look, I wrote a column where I stole an argument from Matt Taibbi who is a sort of left-wing, angry, muck-raking gadfly of a journalist who wrote a long piece over the weekend arguing that the way the media covered the Russia controversy, Russia Gate, l'affaire russe, whatever you want to call it, was way worse than the way they covered WMD in Iraq. And in channeling this argument, I disagreed with it a little bit. I think comparing Russia Gate to the WMD controversy, sort of founders on the fact that the Russiagate controversy has not actually led us into a war with Russia happily, whereas the WMD controversy did lead us into an actual mostly disastrous war. Um, but I think the comparison is useful and I think you can see why it's useful in the way Michelle made her argument, which is that, you know, after after it turned out that there really weren't any WMD in Iraq and that Saddam Hussein was not actually masterminding a conspiracy with al-Qaeda, people who supported the Iraq war would fall back and say, well, look, OK, there weren't WMD and Saddam wasn't in bed with al-Qaeda, but he was a horrible dictator who gassed his own people and was a source of regional instability. And there were still all kinds of reasons why he should have been removed from power and why the Iraq war was a good idea. And that was all fine, but it was still the case that there was this huge amount of media coverage and political argument pinning a huge amount of emphasis on these claims that Saddam had WMD and maybe was working with al-Qaeda. And all of that turned out to be false. And in a similar way, 
yes, of course Michelle is right. There remain all kinds of reasons to think that Donald Trump is a bad person who behaved badly with regard to Russian hacking of Hillary Clinton and that he should not be president. But it remains the case that a huge amount of media attention, statements by former national security officials, by former heads of the intelligence community, endless coverage on MSNBC was all premised on the idea that this was going to end with evidence of serious, sustained collaboration of some kind between Trump's campaign and Russian intelligence. And that's not true. So it's a big deal that it's not true. So even a lot of the kind of maximalist versions of the Russiagate story, which are not just that Trump was actively collaborating, but that he was the other version of that is that he was sort of compromised and being manipulated. And even that version that he's compromised and being manipulated, nothing in the bar letter rules that out at all. In part because being compromised and manipulated is not necessarily a crime that would be part of the counterintelligence, part of this probe about which we still know basically nothing. The final thing I want to say is that what really reminds me of the Iraq War is that there was such belligerence among pro-war proponents. There was this sort of like concentrated onslaught, and it was all kind of an information onslaught, although it was pre-social media, that... It kind of knocked you off balance, right? Particularly if you're a liberal, if you're the sort of person that always assumes that truth is elusive and that other people have might have a point. And I remember, you know, I was in my 20s then feeling discombobulated, right? Like maybe all these people who are so sure are right. And that's what this campaign reminds me of, this like relentless, like, when are you going to apologize? You know, that's what it feels like. But but so and I, I mean, I guess, you know, this is we can't resolve this perfectly. And I do want to say that, of course, you're right, that it is completely possible that there is material in the actual Mueller report that will make the bar letter look like a lawyered up document that concealed some realities. With that being said, I think it's generally unlikely that Robert Mueller, who knows what's in his own report, who has known Barr for a long time and who has shown a perfect willingness to correct the record at various points in the past, would sort of willingly let himself be played in this way. But we'll see. We'll find out over the next few weeks as the actual report right, comes but out. I think, but what I think is happening or what I, what I think could be happening is not that he's letting himself be played and that like he doesn't think that the truth is ever going to come out. But that what the Trump administration is doing is that by getting a head start and sort of setting the terms of the debate early, they're muddying the waters in a way that people aren't going to kind of be able to make sense of what comes next, right? So if Barr weren't a political hack long experienced in covering up Republican scandals, and if he hadn't been chosen for exactly that reason, then you can imagine a headline in which the story is Mueller didn't establish crimes related to coordination or conspiracy. He did find significant evidence of other crimes, obstruction, and that evidence, you know, kind of in keeping with the precedence of other special counsels should now be turned over to Congress to be evaluated, right? Instead, sort of, he stepped in, 
so that the point is not to kind of convince anybody who is a close follower of this administration that Barr is capable of absolving the president. The point is just to kind of create confusing headlines and give them a talking point. I mean, clearly, if we're trying to think about the overall feel that someone who uh, consumed a lot of media would have gotten, yes, I think, I understand you disagree, Michelle, but I think that the what we, what we know so far suggests that the outcome of the Mueller investigation is going to be less than what people would have thought. On the other hand, I don't think this is a case where when you look back at the reporting that was done by the people actually trying to report this out, people at the New York Times and the Washington Post and a lot of other places, there aren't a lot of stories that they got wrong here. I think it was a lot of it was the interpretation. Ross, do you disagree with that? I mean, there, this isn't like WNB where you can look back and say, wow, that story really looks wrong. I mean, I think the reason that folks like Taibbi and other sort of left-wing critics of the media are so upset is that the locus of really bad reporting was MSNBC. And not so much reporting even as sort of coverage, as like the kind of people that Rachel Maddow had on night after night to analyze this. Um, And in that sense, it's understandable that people on the left who were skeptical of this would find it particularly upsetting because MSNBC is supposed to be obviously the left of center channel. But I think that was sort of the, the the worst of it was there. And then I think the, the problems in the mainstream press were more about sort of narrative and omission, that there was – it's not that people were specifically getting things wrong all the time, although there were a lot of cases of, you know, the McClatchy report supposedly confirming that Cohen had gone to Prague and of stories that were sort of hung out there by a single outlet and never confirmed. But in general, it was more a sort of tenor issue. It was that there would be tons of reporting about low-level Trump campaign aides, connections to Russian officials, and a lot less reporting about how, as time went on, most of what was in the Steele dossier looked more and more bogus, right? That, that, that would be my sort of broader press critique, that it was more that sort of when, when things weren't panning out, there was less coverage than there was of, say, you know, Michael Flynn talking to the Russian ambassador and so on. I would say let's see the Mueller report because I think there's a chance that that although individual stories like the McClatchy story appear to have been wrong, I think there's a good chance that much of the beat reporting on this is is going to look quite solid in the end. But we have to wait and see. Okay, now let's talk about what's going to happen next. Michelle, where do you see House Democrats going with this and where do you want them to go? I'm not quite sure where I think they should go, because I actually do feel like what we're seeing so far looks like something of a cover up where Barr is trying to spin this one way and has already sort of seized the narrative. And I you know, really want Democrats to set the record straight. I'm glad that they have given him um, an April 2nd deadline to show them the report. Um, you know, so I do think that they need to agitate and do as much as possible to get the report out there. And, you know, I feel like the line going forward should be, if this exonerates you, then why are you hiding it? And I think it's extremely important that the Intelligence Committee not be intimidated out of pursuing the counterintelligence implications of all of that. You know, at the same time, Democratic candidates have never really wanted to talk about this stuff. So from just like a political perspective... It seems to make sense for them to sort of, you know, let the Judiciary Committee do its job, let the Intelligence Committee do its job, but, you know, kind of take the gift-wrapped present that Trump's Justice Department gave us when it signaled that it wanted the Supreme Court to overturn the entire Affordable Care Act and, you know, kind of 
start running against the very many other depredations that Trump is inflicting on this country. I was struck by that contrast, too. I mean, the idea that the Trump administration kicked out of the headlines the coverage of Barr's summary of the Mueller report to try to take away health insurance from people, I found to be a remarkable bit of political malpractice. And Russ, I assume you agree that the idea of Democrats essentially trying to focus on pocketbook issues and running against Trump as a president who hasn't improved people's lives is a much better tactic for Democrats than scandalmongering. And in that way, this might not actually have been the worst week for the Democratic Party. I totally agree. This was a bad week if you were a Republican who was hoping that there would be a primary challenge to Donald Trump. This sort of removes one of the obvious ways that Trump could sort of fall apart politically. He's much less likely to fall apart politically, much less likely to face a strong challenger, will be therefore somewhat stronger for re-election. But all of the other ways in which the Democrats have successfully attacked Trump and can successfully attack Trump are still there. I think the healthcare example, which I mean, I think most conservative policy people and legal people think this challenge is a little bit ridiculous. So it's a case of Trump doing something that seems sort of purely partisan and doesn't even have much intellectual heft behind it. But it's also the, the most unpopular things Trump have done, has done have all been in the area of trying to repeal and replace Obamacare. And to the extent that this pushes us towards a healthcare conversation and away from a Russia conversation, elected Democrats may be very happy that it happened. Let's end by talking about the 2020 candidates. Ross, you called our attention to this interesting piece written by Tyler Cowen, an economist, arguing about how the Mueller report might affect Joe Biden's candidacy. So tell the listeners about that. I'm not sure if I agree with this, but Cowan is a smart guy. And he basically argues that Biden is selling himself, presumably, as a sort of custodial candidate, a kind of return to normalcy candidate. You know, his advisors are even talking about the the one-term pledge idea that older politicians <laughs> often think about floating. And he's sort of an embodiment of, you know, the kind of Washington establishment that has always been most upset about Trump as a kind of norm violator and possible Putin cat's paw. Um, so in all of those ways... You could argue that this weakens his candidacy. You know, if you just want to get Trump out because you think Putin is running our foreign policy, then getting Biden in makes more sense. But if it's ultimately an election about domestic policy and domestic priorities, then I think other Democrats maybe have more of a case to make. And, and the strongest argument for Biden maybe looks a little weaker. And Michelle, you get the last word. How do you think the end of the Mueller investigation affects the Democrats in 2020? I mean, I have to say what Ross just said, like, you know, I've been really upset this week, again, not just because the dream of Trump being let out of the White House in handcuffs has died, although, you know, that would be a spectacular and life affirming thing. You know, what's upsetting to me is what I said, that, you know, Republicans feel so gleeful and emboldened. And I think people are sort of lying down on the job of opposing them. But Ross has now presented a true silver lining of this turn of events, right? Because if this can help end the rationale for Joe Biden's candidacy before it even begins, then I will almost say it was all worth it. And on that note, we will end the segment. We'll be right back. As a global leader in experiential education, 
Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Two of our last three presidents have been elected despite losing the popular vote. And in Trump's case, he lost it by a lot. We are living in an era of minority rule, as Michelle has written. So last week, Senator Elizabeth Warren called for an end to the Electoral College. Get rid of the Electoral College. Her call has ignited a long simmering debate about it. Ross, you get to go first in this discussion. Tell us why you hate democracy and love the Electoral College. Well, so we just did a segment where I was, you know, full of my own self-righteousness and totally, totally convinced of all the arguments I was making. And this one's going to be a little different. I'm not a strong, devout believer in the Electoral College. I think it's obviously a kind of jerry-rigged system that doesn't do exactly what its original designers intended. And it certainly isn't how I would design a system from scratch. At the same time, the sort of scale of liberal certainty about getting rid of it inspires me to mount at least partial defenses. So I'd make – I guess I'd just make a couple of points. The first is that it's hardly abnormal to have political systems that deliver various forms of minority rule. It's quite common in parliamentary systems to end up with minority prime ministers and minority government. So it's not the, – the way we get there in the U.S. is unique in our own you know, American distinctive kind of way. But it's hardly unknown in the developed world to have minority governments end up elected for one reason or the other. And, and this is my more counterintuitive point. I don't think it's actually the worst thing to have, an, to have a system – that basically tells you if you get to 50.1% of the vote, you aren't actually guaranteed of winning. And the way you guarantee a victory is by getting to 53 or 54 or 55% of the vote. I think that that kind of system incentivizes parties against polarized politics. It creates an incentive against the kind of politics that we've had increasingly in our country. And I think historically, that's how it's worked. Now, we haven't come out of our current era of polarization, which is why we keep having these outcomes. And I think in the long run, if we can't get out of it, then the Electoral College does become a pathway to constitutional crisis. But I think historically, it's actually worked in a more interesting way than some of its critics think. I mean, to me, the Electoral College is intolerable just because it has given us Two minority presidents um, within a very short period of time, you know, after many, many decades when the idea of somebody winning the presidency despite losing the popular vote was treated as, you know, this sort of like outre hypothetical that could possibly happen, but, you know, nobody living had ever seen it. And now it's just a reality, and it's a reality that Trump could win re-election despite losing the popular vote by even more. 
And at a certain point, if you have the majority of the country believes that their government is intolerable and can do nothing about it and can do nothing about the system that creates that um, outcome, I mean, it's a recipe for regime crisis. And I sort of feel like if, you know, our country were a little bit younger and more vigorous, there would have been a regime crisis already. I mean, I, I, I this is, again, where I'm not I'm not making any kind of absolutist argument. I think if you get outcomes like 2016 and 2000 over and over again, it does – it will ultimately lead to regime crisis. But I also think when we talk about polarization, the polarization that we're experiencing is a distinctive, somewhat unique thing in American history. The Electoral College has been around for more than 200 years. We have therefore sort of hundreds of years of data on how it usually works. And my argument is that just that historically – what happens is you have sort of brief periods of ideological or regional polarization and then you might say that the college creates incentives for parties to try and get out of them quickly because as you say, the Democrats right now are looking at a situation where they could win the popular vote again and still lose to Trump and that should – in my theory, create an incentive for Democrats to work harder to get towards Reagan-esque or Rooseveltian majorities, which is what our country actually needs to escape the cycle of polarization. I want to talk about one of those defenses that drives me nuts, which is the, the idea that if you say we should get rid of the Electoral College, you're saying that rural people don't matter, whereas all you're saying is that all Americans should be treated equally. I'm not saying that people in Wyoming or Alaska or Vermont matter less than people in Texas or California. I'm just saying they should all matter equally. And I, I guess, Ross, I'm curious as a partial defender of the Electoral College, is there some more serious version of that argument that I'm missing? I, I, I just don't get it. Well, I think the version of the argument that I agree with is that it's good in the system to have means by which distinctive minorities, political minorities, can find political leverage without having to get to 51 or 52 percent of the vote in a national election. Um, I don't think a system where the 51 percent always win and the 49 percent always lose has some perfect legitimacy just because 51 percent is bigger than 49 percent. But I think that's actually more a defense of the Senate than the Electoral College. I would defend the Senate more on those grounds. I think it's good to create leverage points for regional, rural, and so on populations that can end up neglected, as I think a portion of the American population in the Midwest and greater Appalachia has been neglected over the last 20 years. But I think the Senate does that more effectively than than the Electoral College does. And so that kind of leverage would survive even if you move to a popular vote. I, I want to ask you guys, though, to design your perfect system. Because that's the question isn't just whether you get rid of the Electoral College, right? It's what replaces it. How do you elect a president? I guess I am comfortable with a national popular vote. I understand there are risks of some sort of massive national recount that are, are nightmarish. And I think it's worth taking that seriously. So I'd be open to some sort of more proportional state-based system where we get a lot closer to popular vote. But I, I really think that the downsides of the Electoral College absolutely swamp the downsides of a national popular vote system. But then it's a national popular vote with or without a runoff. Uh, I mean, 
as we've talked about, I'm a big fan of, of this idea of ranked choice voting. So uh, I don't think I would do a runoff. I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea of you vote once, uh, you rank your candidates. And if you ranked a third party candidate first, then then you go to your vote next. Yeah, I agree. That's I mean, to be honest, I haven't given this a huge amount of thought. I mean, basically, I just think you should get rid of the Electoral College and have a national popular vote. But the mechanism of that vote is not something I've thought about a lot. But I, you know, I'm a big fan, like David, of ranked choice voting in congressional elections or in state elections like Maine has adopted it. I think more states should adopt it. And so I can't think of an argument against using that at the national level. Well, I mean, I'm not wildly against that idea. But I think every idea that you come up with creates potential downside. Um, One thing the Electoral College definitely does is make it very hard for a third party challenger to really challenge for the presidency unless they have a sort of concentrated regional support. Like Ross Perot, the last really successful third party candidate, really didn't get any electoral votes. Um, hey, but Ross, you like third parties. No, I'm not. I'm 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 just playing around here a little bit, right? No, I I don't think I don't think that would be so terrible. But it would create a situation where someone like Howard Schultz, who neither of you guys particularly like like right now, has more of an incentive to get in and help make Donald Trump president, maybe than he would under the electoral college system. I mean, it, it's the Green Book problem. At last, I get to make an Oscar analogy, right? Green Book won Best Picture, despite being. I think, by general agreement, a kind of mediocre movie because nobody really hated it and people ranked it pretty high on their ranked choice voting. But probably at least one other and maybe many other movies got more number one votes for Best Picture, but they still lost to Green Book. So the ranked choice system delivers you the inoffensive president who who people dislike the least potentially while denying the nomination to someone who maybe gets the actual most votes. And maybe that's fine, but it is but it is a change. Okay, so that's worth thinking through. And, and I actually find the Green Book possibility very scary and persuasive. It still sounds better to me to have a system in which the sort of meh candidate has a chance of winning than a candidate that is virulently hated by a majority of the population. Yeah, I mean, I think what's definitely true is that the Electoral College was supposed to create impediments basically to demagogues, right? I mean, if you look at right. what the, the Electoral and, College was supposed to stop people like Trump. Yes. And in that respect, it's obviously failed. Yes. And the Electoral College in that sense also makes more sense in a system with stronger political parties, which we no longer have. I think that Trump, Trump himself, the fact that he could win despite the Electoral College, does show that it's not doing one of the jobs the founders envisioned for it. At the same time, I think Hillary Clinton deserved to lose the last election because of how she campaigned. So I can't help feeling that Trump's election also makes a kind of case for the electoral electoral college in this strange way. To me, one of the most exciting things about getting rid of the electoral college would be all of the places that have been wholly ignored during presidential campaigns that no longer would be. I mean, our colleague Jamel Bowie pointed out that inland California, a place with huge numbers of conservative voters, almost totally ignored in presidential campaigns, would no longer be. Or big cities in Texas, where there are a lot of Democratic voters. Um, it would basically take all these people who've been left out of the process and, and involve them again. And, and that's why the idea excites me. I mean, I guess that argument to me makes more sense if we were living through an era of sort of massive political disengagement where nobody's voting and voter turnout is falling and so on. And that doesn't seem to overall be the kind of era we're necessarily 
living through, right? Like I, I, I feel like the case for a constitutional amendment to make sure that you get slightly higher turnout in rural California is not the decisive case in the way that the regime crisis case seems that, – that seems to me to be the much stronger case. I mean, yes and no. Voter turnout rates among people under the age of 30 or 40 are pretty horrifically low. And so if a 25-year-old living in the Inland Empire of California or, or living in Dallas said to me, my vote doesn't matter at all, there's a way in which they're right about that. And so to me, the idea of making people feel like we have a more responsive political system – has some inherent value to it. Uh, this could actually happen. A whole bunch of states, including California and New York, have passed laws saying they will devote their electoral college votes to the winner of the popular vote so long as enough states do so. And in fact, if you count it up, uh, we're two-thirds of the way toward having that actually happen. If a Republican were to lose when winning the popular vote and a few Republican states were to pass this legislation, I think we're actually closer to the electoral college not functionally mattering than a lot of people realize. So it's a good time to dig into the upsides and downsides of it. That will do it for our Electoral College discussion. We'll be right back with our weekly recommendation. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation when we give you a suggestion that is meant to take your mind off of politics. This week, it's my turn, and I am going to make a recommendation that is born out of sadness, unfortunately. An economist by the name of Alan Kruger recently committed suicide at the age of 58. He was an enormously important and influential economist. Uh, I knew Alan somewhat. I'd interviewed him many times. Uh, and one of his areas of research was happiness, what makes human beings happy. And I once asked him when I was interviewing him whether any of the research he had done had affected his own view about what to do. And he gave me two pieces of really lovely and obviously quite poignant in retrospect pieces of advice. And I just wanted to share them. The first is he said that the data shows that hanging out with friends really makes people happy in a way that nothing else does, in a way that work doesn't, even in a way that hanging out with relatives doesn't. And so he took that and said, even at the end of a long day or long week when he was tired, if he was debating whether to go to a party or whether to do something with friends, even if in the moment he didn't want to do it. The data tried to push him to do it more often. And the second piece of advice, which is something that I find myself following all the time now, is he said that people don't really value objects that they get as gifts. They appreciate the thought, but the object usually isn't that useful to them. But they do really value experiences. And so it would make sense to kind of nudge our gifts a little bit more toward giving people experiences. Uh, you can take someone out for coffee. You can take them out to dinner. Uh, the story Alan told me is he splurged and he took his dad to a Super Bowl to watch his dad's beloved New York Giants. And then he got a souvenir from the game framed and hung it in his office so he could look at it all the time. And I think about that a lot. And I already miss Alan and am shocked and saddened by his death as nearly the entire world of economics is. So I just wanted to share that little bit. Those two little Little bits of wisdom from him with the two of you and with all of our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people who knew him. And, you know, yes, everybody is shocked and heartbroken. And, you know, even me as a non-economist kind of knew how important and significant his work was. And both of those things that you said seem like actually more valuable than like 99% of 
self-help advice that I can think of. And 99% of economics. Oh, yeah, definitely. I just took my family, my wife and three kids. We flew to Colorado to see some relatives who are moving back east and therefore won't be in Colorado for much longer. And it was one of the worst travel experiences I've had because we were delayed by the bomb cyclone snowstorm that went off in in Denver. And then we were moved to a non-direct flight and our seats weren't together. And when you have a three-year-old and your seats aren't together and you're running to catch a connection, it's, it's a total nightmare. But the truth is that, you know, at the end of the day, we're back on the East Coast. And I think the memories from the trip will either be happy ones or sort of bemused, rueful, entertaining ones from the disastrous travel. And in that sense, it's a sort of personal case study in David's point that doing things with friends or family, however challenging they may be, are essential to what makes not just life worth living, but memory worth having. That's a good place to leave our show this week. As always, we would like to hear your feedback. You can leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324, and we may play you on the show. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. If you like what you hear, please do leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced, as it always is, by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media and edited by Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ying. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. Thank you for listening. We'll see you back here next week. So maybe the next segment should be like, are we actually living in a simulation gone wrong? <laughs> Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.